Welcome to Policed in Ireland, the podcast that seeks to capture the experiences people have with the police. I'm Dr Vicky Conway and I'm passionate about listening to people from all different walks of life about how they experience our police on Guard Síochána. A lot of the time when the guards were coming there for their placements and then they were chasing you maybe a year or six months later or so. We always had a distrust of them then, do you know what I mean? I think that was unhealthy to have a guard in a placement in a youth project. It's like a profiling, I, I think, looking back, you know, it's like he's getting to know us here so he can chase us afterwards, you know. In this, our 21st episode, we're joined by James Leonard, known to many of you as the co-host of the Two Naris podcast. James, who's currently doing a PhD in criminology in UCC, always speaks openly about his experiences with addiction and recovery. If you haven't heard their recent episode with the incredible Gabor Mate, we at Police highly recommend you do so. Today, he speaks more specifically to us about his interactions with the Gardaí. There's a wider debate around the criminalisation of drugs in this country, but that's not what we're focusing on. Although it may make you think about that too. Our focus in this episode is on thinking about how the Gardaí engage and interact with people whose lives are chaotic, who may be in and out of the criminal justice system. And how are those interactions felt and experienced by the person? It can be really easy to think they did a bad thing, they should be punished. But if we want a society with less crime, then all of the research tells us that punishment rarely works. To this end, we are joined by Professor Shab Maruna of Queen's University Belfast, one of the world's leading scholars on the theory of desistance. This theory, as he explains, focuses on what it is that makes people stop engaging in criminal behaviour and what role the police can play in that process. My name is James Leonard and I am from Cork City. I'm from the north side of Cork City, a place called Knocknahini and Hollyhill. Um, Northwest Cork City, you can walk to the city centre in five or ten minutes one way and you're in the countryside the other way. And just over the hills is Blarney. So uh, it's on the outskirts of the city. It's an area that it's all I know. So I, I never see anything wrong with it. It was only when I started going to college, I started learning about, you know, deprivation and poverty and things like that but I never knew I was poor growing up you know, I never wanted for anything you know and poverty is always relative you know and relative to there was nobody had a lot of wealth or affluence in my area so relative to everybody else around we were fine you know what I mean it was only in, when you look at in relation to other parts of the city maybe we were less well off but a happy childhood for the most part you know early childhood anyway I suppose I should say, really, I, I was born in Dublin. Actually, I was born in the Coombe Hospital on Halloween night, 1985. We lived in Neilstown uh, in Clondalkin, which is near Weefield Prison. It was being built at the time, I think. Um, my dad is a dub, he's from Inchicore. My mother didn't like Dublin, and Dublin was just, it was kind of the area where we were, was just becoming a bit um, dangerous, I suppose, at the time with crime and drug use, and my mum wanted to move back to Cork. So t- she wanted to move somewhere quieter, so she moved to Knocknahini in the mid-80s, which was uh, probably the roughest neighbourhood in Munster at the time, you know. <laughs> As the person who does these interviews for the podcast and who always starts with the question, tell me about yourself, it's always interesting to hear what someone mentions as important in relation to who they are. And for James, place and his environment is at the forefront of his thinking. 
Knocknahini is around since 1981. Um, traditionally, it's it's all social housing. Uh, I suppose as as times went on, people have bought their homes, but it was always social housing to start off with. A lot of working class people would have been employed in industries like Dunlops, Fords, and all these other kind of manufacturing, factory kind of um, industry that all left in the 80s with a recession. So in an area like that then, when the jobs left, you're left with a lot of poverty, a lot of addiction, mental health issues, uh, antisocial behaviour. Um, and behind every stereotype, there's an element of truth and there's a stereotype of young people from Knocknahini being into joyriding. And that's because there used to be a lot of joyriding, especially around the mid-80s and in the 90s, where it was easier to steal a car. But so the area I grew up, anyway, I had to give you a flavour for it. Working class area has its issues, but at the same time, we loved it, you know. But I think in an area like that as well, because people were working in manual jobs, either in construction for men or cleaning and stuff like that for women, you know. Um, if you didn't want to do any of those things, there's very little options for you. Um, and we we had, when I say we know me and my peers of my age, we had a very kind of negative perception on work and education, you know. In primary school, I, I was okay, you know, I, was, I did well. I went into secondary school then, which I went into the, the North Man, which is a Christian Brothers College not far from where I'm living now, in Fairhill. That was all boys. It was strictly GA, no soccer, and I was into the soccer. Um, and I just really found it hard to make the transition from primary to secondary school. Um, around that time as well, my dad was after getting a seven-year sentence for drugs. And um, I found that, you know, very, very hard to cope with that. Um and I think I acted out in school then in a way like I didn't have the I, I, I had I was I was always bright, you know, and I always had ability for academic stuff in school. It was never any challenge for me really, you know. If I applied myself I did really well, but I didn't apply myself really, you know. And I don't know what it was, it wasn't that I didn't have an interest. I remember I for my junior after I did my junior sort, I dropped uh, history and geography because I didn't get on with the teachers. They were my strongest subjects, you know. Um, I couldn't sit still and I couldn't concentrate and my behaviour was very poor um, and it caused a lot of conflict for me in school. That then led to a lot of conflict at home because my mother had to come in every so often, regularly. It was so regular that my mum used to alternate with my aunt and my nan and they would come down and they were begging and pleading with the principal just to let me sit the leave and search, you know, just so I was put into a class with about five or six other people that had come from home similar to my own, um, two or three of them, and the other couple, I think they had intellectual disabilities, definitely. Um, they were very nice young fellas, they were quiet, well behaved, but for whatever reason they couldn't learn, you know, so we were kind of the misfits, you know, the people that couldn't learn and the people that didn't want to learn, that was our class. Listeners may remember that when we spoke to Amy, who was abused as a child, that Dr Jane Mulcahy told us about adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, these are things that can happen during childhood, which can have a very formative impact on a young person. These experiences can include things like physical and emotional abuse, neglect, caregiver mental illness and household violence. The more ACEs a child experiences, the more likely he or she is to suffer from things like heart disease and diabetes, poor academic achievement and substance abuse later in life. Factors such as deprivation or a parent in prison, which James mentions, are both considered ACEs. 
So it's a really important lens to consider, as things which are outside the control of the individual may place them squarely inside the criminal justice system. There's another process going on here too, which in criminology is called labelling. This theory was developed in the 1930s, but really came to the fore following work by Howard Becker called Outsiders in 1963. Labelling theory tried to understand why some people commit crime while others don't, even when they're from similar environments. At its heart, it looks at the psychological impact of how others respond to our behaviour. How do we react when someone tells us that our behaviour is good or bad, right or wrong? How do we internalise the labels that others apply to us? So a kid who acts out in class might initially be considered the class clown, then later the bold one, then later the troublemaker. And over time, if these labels aren't challenged, not only do they stick, but the person changes their concept of self to incorporate the label. It goes from they think I'm bold to I'm bold. And it all accumulates until they get the really damaging label of deviant and criminal. And once that label has been applied and you have a criminal record, changing that in your own mind and in the eyes of others is incredibly hard. So the traditional criminal justice response oftentimes will make things worse rather than better and meshing the individual even further into criminal behaviour. Critical to this theory is seeing that the negative reaction of others to a particular behaviour is what causes that behaviour to be labelled as criminal or deviant. On top of this, it is the negative reaction of others to an individual engaged in particular behaviour that causes that individual to be labelled as criminal or deviant. Not any choice by the person. And that suited me fine because I was able to just course through. There was very little expected of me. But it just shows me, you know, when you look back, like the amount of effort it took part of my family just to get me to do the leave and search and all. James was clearly a very bright kid who had a determined mother in his corner. And like none of my friends did the leave and search. My mother was adamant that if we did nothing else, we did the leave and search, you know what I mean? So that's kind of... The benchmark for a lot of people, you know, single mothers and stuff like that, you know, it's like so much effort and time and resources going into just getting to the leave and sort. Um, so I suppose I didn't see the value of education. I did a basic leave and sort. I did two foundation, um, jog, uh, foundation maths and foundation Irish, just because I could. I'd have done them all foundation if I thought I could, but I couldn't. And I did five ordinary and I sat it and I remember I left the exams early, but long story short, I, I, I completed leaving sort. I couldn't tell you how many points I got, literally I couldn't. I, um, and CAO applications, anything like that, it was never, it was like school, it was something that I enjoyed, I hated it, I was found it um, re-traumatising, if I can use that word, you know, because of what was going on at home, my personal life. The school did very little, the school did nothing to help me, really. Um, the only kind of, it was all negativity around that time in my life, from the age of 12 to 17, it was all negativity. And by the time I left school, I was just, I had a negative head on me. You know, I left sports, um, I was withdrawn from the family, um, and I just started using drugs, you know, and I suppose the core conditions were for addiction were there, you know, from early, before I ever used the drug. And when I look back, it was only a matter of time that I started using. It was always going to end in addiction because I had all these, um, it was just all negativity and when I took the drugs, you know, that low self-esteem and when I left school, my self-esteem and confidence was very poor, you know. Um, I had a lot of hurt and anger towards, you know, the situation that was going on with the family and going up to visit my dad in prison and stuff like that, you know, I hated all that. When I took drinking drugs, I 
I was relieved of all that, you know, so um, I kind of ran with the drinking drugs, I suppose, from then, you know. It's sad that when, as he says, the court conditions were present, that addiction was so inevitable. As he and Timmy discuss so often on their podcast, addiction is not a choice, but very often a poor coping mechanism, which is just evidence of the hurt and trauma in someone's life. And where he grew up and the fact that so many of his peers had similar life experiences added to that. For me, um, there was loads of people like me where I'm from, you know. That is like, it's not very, it's not uncommon for somebody in the family to be in prison or for um, a single mother to be at home with the kids, you know. It's it's very common actually. And I think for for, for me anyway, um, because I dropped out of sports and I was finished with school. As soon as I finished school, I left home. Um, and I just kind of, I don't know, I, I felt I, I belonged in the streets, you know, drinking and taking drugs. And um, and I learned then later on, you know, when I was doing my, my courses and I was studying drug use and drug policy and stuff like that. We don't take drugs just to just to quell the traumas or to, and maybe to give you self-esteem and confidence and stuff like that. It also fills the void of mundane life for somebody that's unemployed, you know. It's like finding ways and means to use drugs. It takes up your all your time, you know. And then you have status if you can get good scripts from doctors or if you can find the best gear or you can get you're a good dealer. So it gives you status, it gives you a purpose in life, you know. And I, I never seen myself as somebody that was going to work or go to college, to be honest. Like, And I felt like that this was my life. Again, I think it's really easy for anyone who grew up in a different space to see these actions as choices, which can be labelled as bad or even illegal. But we have to listen and understand the range of meanings which addiction and what we can label antisocial behaviour can have for someone. The criminal justice system is one of the few places where addiction is considered a moral wrong for which someone should be punished. Talk to doctors and psychiatrists and you'll hear that some consider addiction a disease, like any other disease, while others see it as a mixture of biological, psychological and social factors. You'll struggle to find an expert who considers addiction a bad choice. Sure, if they don't deal with it or take responsibility for their behaviour, there may be a problem. But the way the criminal justice system responds, labelling this behaviour, makes the path fairly inevitable, as well as shaping how a young kid like James will internalise those responses. When I started going into prison from an early age, we say, well, I'd done my leaving start in June 2013, June 2003, sorry. And in October 2004, I was in court prison for them. I was after getting caught with a block of hash at a UB40 gig in Mill Street. <laughs> As I said to you, there's a, behind every stereotype is an element of truth and a hash smoking young fella at a UB40 concert is definitely a stereotype that I kind of fit, you know, and... Um, I thought it was cool that I was going to go to prison for a few days because my brother's friends were up there, some of my older friends were up there, my dad wasn't out long. Um, it was something that uh, it was something that we kind of aspired to in a weird way, do you know what I mean? It was like, this is what the cool people did, this is what our role models did. And um, but all, at the same time, there was an, a lot of fear about it too because a scrawny 18-year-old going into the unknown of prison and all this, you know, I had the same image as everybody else of what a prison can be violent, it can be dangerous and all these things. Like, But when I went in there, I was fine after a few hours. And on, I, looking back, again, I, I get a great critical eye through my education afterwards. No? 
But looking back, when I went into prison the first time, I was surprised. There's there's three wings in Cork, the old Cork prison, old Victorian building with a kind of a circle and three wings, I suppose, based on the panopticon where the officers could see all wings at all time type of thing. And A wing is where all we were. And on A3, which was the third landing, it was all people from my area, about 40 people from a radius of about a mile. <laughs> and then on A2 was all fellas from... Um, Talk or Mahan, parts of Waterford like Ballybeg. Um, A1 then was people that were working in the kitchen and trustees. And then on B3 was all travellers. B2 was like um, Romanians, Nigerians, Lithuanians and Polish. And then B1 was a committal landing. And then C3 was for people, and C2 was for people that was on protection. Um, and then C1 was long-term prisoners, single cells. But if you look at it really, it's the most, the poorest people, you know, the poorest people, the people that are socially excluded and prejudiced and discriminated against, that's kind of who made up the prison environment, you know. And the prison environment and environment on the street is very same, really. It's this facade that a man has of, you know, drink, talk about drugs and women and crime and all this stuff, you know. And it's all a facade, it's the same on the outside, you know. So um, I think I integrated very quickly um, I made the transition from being outside to being in prison. It was no problem to me. Um, I knew all the boys in there was like a home from home, you know, and that, that started a very unhealthy cycle of going in and out and prison not being a deterrent. And for me and people, a lot of people like me, it was like prison was like something that you had to endure every so often, you know, it was like an occupational hazard. There's a podcast in itself about the impact of imprisonment, questioning what it actually achieves. There's very little investment in rehabilitation in prison here. And politically, it's a challenging space in which to say we need to spend more money on training or whatever else. We even had a newspaper piece recently dissecting how much is spent on prison food. There's a strong movement that challenges the whole concept and use of prison. But for police, we can think of the guards as the first gatekeepers to that criminal justice system. Simply arresting someone can put a label on them. Even earlier than that, the stops on the street, the orders to clear off, all of these actions can contribute to this behaviour. Professor Shab Maruna of Queen's University Belfast, a world-leading researcher on why people stop committing crime, spoke to me about what's problematic about a traditional criminal justice response. We often think about criminal justice response in the way we think about um, medical response. So if, if you've got a problem, you need to go see a doctor and they, they'll make it better. Uh, and that's actually not always the case with medical problems, but with justice problems, it, it's definitely a false framework, a false narrative. Uh, when you work with people uh, who have been through the justice system for, from any perspective, as staff or as uh uh, so-called customers, clients of the justice system, rarely is the, the relationship in that kind of easy correctional uh, manner. Uh, most of the time, when people talk about interactions with justice, um, the uh, arrows go in a different direction. They talk about um, the criminogenic effects of, of justice system involvement. So a easier way of saying that is that much of the things that we do as a justice system aren't correctional in their nature, despite uh, Americanized language sometimes being used. The justice system has a number of purposes, justice being the key one, uh, retribution and punishment. And the idea that that punishment is always 
a positive thing in people's lives is definitely a, a myth. It's oftentimes the, the more we punish, the worse the outcomes we see. The famous cliche of, of prison is an expensive way of making bad people worse uh, is um, a, a simplistic formula, but in, indeed, uh, that is more in line with the evidence that we know about uh, the effects of imprisonment than the, the equally simplistic notion of you take folks who have every disadvantage in life, who are struggling to cope, and then you take everything away from them, you lock them away, uh, you remove you know, their, their contact with, with family, uh, you, you stigmatize them, you make the idea of, of employment in the future nearly impossible, and then you expect that they're going to get uh, better and turn their lives around. You know, I mean, that kind of fantasy is, is equally mythological, I guess, is, is the opposite. His award-winning book, Making Good, challenges us to think differently about this through the lens of desistance. So desistance at its most basic is a behavioral description of not offending uh, among people who have previously been involved in, in offending at, at high levels. So um, we, we know the word desistance from the phrase cease and desist. Uh, to cease and desist means to stop what you're doing and to not continue what you were doing. That, that part is the desistance part. So um, desistance is a bit like abstinence. It, 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 we can't actually see it. Uh, it's a word that means a lack or an absence of something. We've known that people desist from crime for a hundred years. You know, we, we call it sometimes going straight or going legitimate. Uh, phrases are now um, old fashioned and, and, and probably politically incorrect. But the, uh, the, the notion that people grow out of crime or age out of crime has been well known in criminology that we know that what we call crime, street crimes, uh, are largely young male domains, a young man's game, uh, so, so to speak. And we don't see older people, uh, male or female, uh, involved in, in criminal behavior. So we knew and have known for a long time that something goes on in the life course. Uh, what we didn't have was a substantial research basis to try to explain and understand this, this process of desistance. We kind of took it for granted as this kind of, yeah, it, it just happens. People will just age out as if aging was a kind of magical process. Something about turning 30 uh, uh, has this uh, somehow anti-criminogenic function to it. And of course it doesn't. There, there are social, biological psychological, uh, interactional, contextual, historical, political dynamics involved in that process of desistance from crime. And that's what the literature that has grown up in the past, say, 20, 30 years, uh, has tried to explore. And, and we're, we're not even close to, to getting there yet. This idea that crime is a young man's game, that people age out of it, is perfectly encapsulated in the Irish prison statistics. For 2019, 87% of prisoners were male and 86% were between the ages of 18 and 44. It bell curves in the 30s and then drops off very drastically. Most criminals are male and they nearly all stop when they hit their 40s. Shad has listened to and analysed the stories repeat offenders tell of their lives to try and understand how some manage to make good. And this is exactly what James has done. And listening to how he has done so in the midst of the traditional criminal justice system is both important and inspiring. James tells us about his perception of the guards when he was young. Very negative. 
because people in my area, they don't really, um, the perception around the guards up here would be that they're not there to help you. They're not there to be trusted. And if they come into the estate, you're always kind of looking over your shoulders if you did something wrong, even though you might be doing anything wrong, you know. It's always like a them and an us, you know. That was that was kind of it, really. Back in the day when I was um, in the Nakanahini Youth Justice Project, you know, um, we used to have a running joke actually about that. You had to you had to be involved in crime to get selected to go in the groups up in the Gary Diversion Projects called these days, like but only the mad young flares or the troubled young flares got in there, but I suppose I got in there eventually anyway. The Youth Justice Project was developed to try and work on prevention as a better response than imprisonment. The project is managed by local community volunteers in conjunction with Gardaí, probation, addiction counsellors and so on. Through a wide range of activities and programmes, they aim to improve the lives of young people. Back in the day, it was those young people that were at risk. They were either involved in trouble or at risk of it. I suppose because in my house, my dad was in prison and there was a history of addiction. I think that maybe that's why I was kind of highlighted as somebody that maybe that needed youth services. Some of the other lads in the group would have been, you know, had been arrested a few times, and some of the other lads might have been. Uh, I can remember one or two of them. They would have been quiet, or lads maybe getting bullied in school, and they were kind of brought in, you know. But for James, the lines often got blurred around Garda involvement in the project. The rookie guards used to have to do placement in the youth justice projects, you know, and a lot of the time when the guards would come in there for their placements, and then they're chasing yeah, maybe a year or six months later, you know, so. We always had a distrust of them then, do you know what I mean? I think that was unhealthy to have a guard in a placement in a youth project. It's like a profiling, I, I think, looking back, you know, it's like he's getting to know us here and always just be, so he can chase us afterwards, you know. So there was an element to that. There was also this thing about in, in the working class areas, if you went to the if you went to the guards you were a rat, even if there was a crime committed against you, you still wouldn't go to the guards, you know. You wouldn't go to the guards, you'd deal with it yourselves. And there was a case here a few years ago, there was um, two Dublin lads burgled a house in Churchfield and the neighbours knew they were in there. And when they came out, they didn't ring the guards for them two boys and then they killed them boys in the state, you know. And that's kind of that's kind of the way it is. Like, you don't ring the guards. Um, if I'm in trouble today, if somebody commits a crime against me today, the first person I'm going to ring is a guard, do you know what I mean? Because a guard is there to help you. But the perception at that time wasn't like that. Plus then if I have um, a father involved in crime and friends, brothers going to prison, it's always the talk around guards is always negative, do you know what I mean? So you're, you're fed this stuff from a very early age, you know, that a guard is, it's always an adversarial relationship you're going to have, you know. We talk a lot in this country about the high levels of trust in the Gardaí and how much better it is than in other countries. But it's really important to see that this is not universal. When we spoke to the Wheelocks, we heard about this in relation to Dublin's North Inner City. And now James is telling us about the really high levels of distrust in deprived parts of Cork. I don't think I, I remember my first encounter because a lot of my early encounters with guards was done under the influence of alcohol and prescription drugs. A lot of the time you'd have no recollection of what was happening, you know. We were very volatile young fellas and there was a lot of... Um, there was a lot of joyriding, anti-social behaviour, fighting and um, just a lot of hurt, angry 16, 17, 18 year olds full of alcohol and rohypnol and Xanax and Valium and the behaviour was very erratic, you know. Um, the girls, it's a safe word drinking down the lane, the girls would come on, um, 
pour out your open drink and take the other drink, that type of thing. You know, so it was always like, you're looking over your shoulder, here's the girls run, you know, or making sure you've nothing in your pockets if you would hash, you know, because it was always, you'd always have hash or tablets or something on you, you know, so it was always, if you've seen the girls, it was like, um, you're always hyper-vigilant, I suppose, you know, looking out for the girls and you drink in spots where there was a few exits and in Nakhnehini at the time, there was laneways everywhere, you know, so we were very strategic in where we drank. So if we seen a girl coming that way, we could go that way. It would take a lot of resources for the girls to block all the exits, you know. And what are we doing anyway? Do you know what I mean? We're only drinking, you know. And we tried to, like, there was an always an expectancy that the girl is going to come and he's kind of doing his job type of things, you know. We always, like, so sometimes we'd go down to fields where we're well away from everybody, you know. Um and when the girls would come down to the fields to annoy us, then we'd get very thick about that, you know, because we're after going out, we're about a mile away from everybody, you know what I mean? We're not causing no harm to nobody. We're standing here around listening to the music, drinking, we're not doing any harm. Technically, we're drinking in the public, I suppose. It is a crime, but, you know, you have to choose your battles. We always felt like that. The girls, Some of the girls would be, give you an extra, some particular girls would just go out of his way to make your life difficult, you know, and that a girl like that um, breeds a lot of negativity not just to him but to everybody that represents that uniform you know so you could have one or two girls that would be sound and there is sound girls and we come across girls you know and uh, if they're on patrol and they say hey, you know if you were drinking they say lads look whatever you're doing lads just put the bottles and cans into the bags and you know keep down the noise type of a thing you know and they drive on and we'd respect that and we would kind of look after the area and stuff like that then you'd have other girls come on, you know, with chip on his shoulder or start to pour out cans and taking alcohol and, you know, just kind of, we hated that. Like, and then that might, the next girl that comes in, you know, the memory is there, you know, and they, they might get a lot of abuse, you know, so it's important, like, for a girl as well to understand like that. Um, you have to treat people with respect, you know, no matter who they are. What James describes is not far off suggesting that the Gardaí were integral to their social lives. I've racked my brains to think about how the Gardaí intersect with my social life. If I went to gigs, you'd see them. After nights out, they'd be gathered around the fountain on Grand Parade in Cork as we were heading home. But these experiences are a world away from James's, even though it's just about a 20-minute walk from Grand Parade to Knocknahini. I was taught to turn to the guards, to trust them. James was policed. Two people in the same small city can have polar opposite experiences on a day-to-day basis. What the guards were to me might as well have been a different organisation to the guards in James's life. We have to acknowledge the impact of social deprivation on this. Young men in my area are way overrepresented in the prison system. It's not because everybody up here was born a criminal, do you know? It's not that everybody up here was born stupid or not, not capable or lacking ability or work ethic or anything like that. It's not, it's just with different obstacles, we've access to limited access to we don't all stand like I suppose I learned this term as well in college meritocracy if you work hard enough and you're smart enough you'll succeed in life but we, that's only relevant if you're all starting at the same spot and for somebody in my area the most intelligent uh, with the best work ethic but all that effort intelligence and work ethic goes into keeping the family safe and making sure that the food is on the table and for, for a mother doesn't matter how smart she is how hard she works, you know, she's never going to be a Taoiseach or she's never going to be an academic 
because the, all that effort and intelligence goes into making sure the child gets to the leaving sort, the other siblings are fed, you know, so um, we have more obstacles in the way. A lot of the time though, when it came to the girls for me as well, it was I was always caught kind of bank to rights type of thing, you know. I always like accepted right was after doing wrong. I accepted the punishment, you know. It was never a one for if I got arrested, given a lot of abuse or getting involved in violence with the girls, stuff like that. I was like, all right, you know. It was a lot of it was petty and stupid as well, Vicky. You know, it was like um, being in rob cars and public order offences and stuff like that. How someone reacts to the police when stopped or arrested can have a significant impact on what happens. There's research that shows the people who are rude to the police can be considered troublemakers or held in contempt of cop, which will make their situation worse. This is just one example of how they feel over-policed. You're policed differently. For example, and this is the, the most obvious example, I'm bonfire night up in Knocknahini in the north, in the in the Cork City in general, but generally in the in the working class areas, everybody in the states they'd have the bonfires and sit around the fires. The neighbours would come out and stuff like that, you know. Sometimes there's anti-social behaviour, but it, you know, so the whole neighbourhood kind of comes out. Um, the girls would be coming in, um, taking people's alcohol and stuff like that, you know. People are going to court, stuff like that. If you go over and look on UCC around Rag Week or Freshers Week or anything like that and you see gangs of young fellas over there drinking and they're tumbling wheelie bins and smashing car windows and causing all sorts of mayhem for the neighbours over there, the guards come in and they disperse them, you know? There's nobody getting thrown into the back of paddy wagons and that's a big gripe for the neighbours over there because I've heard them a lot of times on the radio giving out about the girls come but nobody's been arrested and then for the one or two that might get arrested they go to the judge and then they're avoiding a conviction because he's a very bright future ahead of him whereas somebody from my area comes in is oh he's going to be it's impl- it's implicit now as well it's not explicit but oh sure James he, there's nothing going to become him he's from up there you know he's not going to university give him the conviction whereas James from um, another part of the area where he's maybe doing a bachelor's degree or something Oh, look, he's got a lot of potential. No one's going to hamper, you know. So you're policed differently. Plus in areas like, I think you're from Douglas, Vicky, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In in areas like Douglas and Ballancolig and, and stuff like that, Carrigaline, you have a lot of um, antisocial behaviour and drug use in those areas too. But you don't have the guard of presence like you do in the north side, you know. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's that, that is a fact. Like James talks about attitudinal differences as well as geographic ones. These geographic differences are well documented in research, particularly around stop and search literature. If you put police anywhere, you'll increase the amount of crime you find in that location. It can sound like a chicken and egg argument, but when we analyse it, there are social differences which can make this an inevitability. Some of the research talks about available populations, that in working class areas, people hang out on the streets more. This may be because of employment differences, both in terms of levels, but also times of day. It may also be about space. Teenagers in more affluent areas may have access to better indoor spaces, either in their homes or in places they can afford to go to. So if you put more police into working class areas, they'll find more antisocial behaviour. And this over-policing and labelling becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and a totally vicious cycle. I'm saying this because I hate the phrase, but you're kind of known a bit to the guards, were you? Yeah, as you, I suppose, as you become known to the girls and, you know, you have a reputation for somebody that has been arrested, has been in prison, every time you're spotted, then you're searched, you know, 
always like and it didn't matter if you were trying to be do like sometimes you're trying to go straight sometimes you're, you're, you're maybe you're in a relationship and you're kind of quieting down but you're always searched and that hyper vigilance is always with you you know it's always looking over your shoulder and stuff like that you know so um it's it doesn't it's not it's not a healthy relationship for you to be in in your local area you know James describes his interactions with the Gardaí as a relationship, such was the scale, and an unhealthy one at that. And he's not one-sided in his views either. But at the same time, I can understand, like, if a Garda is under pressure and there's crime and drug use in the area, you know, and the guards are under pressure too, you know. Um, but I suppose when I kind of grew out of the antisocial behaviour and the drinking and stuff like that, that was when heroin kind of came in. Um, and when heroin came in, um, a lot of the time I was being arrested for drugs, you know, drug possession. And sometimes it wouldn't even be drugs. It would be like um, maybe burnt tinfoil in my back pocket that I forgot to throw in the bin, you know, that I smoked heroin and there's no drugs on it now. And then you're going to court for possession of drugs. Stuff like that would really piss you off, you know. Or if you were going to court for a small, a tiny little bit of hash that was in the corner of your pocket, you know, some, some girls would bring you to court for that. I can't fathom a perspective that thinks it's useful to pursue such cases. Shad talks to us about what research shows helps people desist. We have uh, zeroed in on some some very core social and and related um, uh, subjective or psychological factors uh, that seem to relate to desistance. Um, On the the social front, it it will be no surprise um, that the people who are better integrated uh, into families, into strong relationships, uh, into uh, places of employment, uh, clubs, associations, peer groups uh, of of certain types, uh, uh, one should say, uh, community civic type organizations. Um, So people with stronger social ties, uh, bonds to the wider community, are going to be the most likely to desist from crime. And, and, and this is uh, for, for a number of reasons, including the s- support uh, that, that all of us need to get by, but also the kind of informal controls that having those commitments to others bring with it. So, so if you're in a relationship, if you uh, are being a father to your children, um, you know, getting in trouble, uh, finding yourself in prison, uh, going on long benders or, or, or uh, getting involved in and crimes that can, can take you away from those family uh, relationships and, and commitments are, are, um, are less likely. Uh, it, it, the two roles don't, don't go well together. On, on a subjective level, uh, and, and I've done a lot of my research on this uh, side of, of things, we find that, that people who are able to go straight um, have more hope in, in their life. They, they have goals and ambitions they know what, what they want to do with their future, uh, and, and they know what they need to do to get there. Uh, they, they feel that, that they have something to contribute to the world, and they want to do that. They want to show that they're more than just their mistakes. They, they often uh, talk about uh, wanting to, to prove something about themselves and, and, and to their family, to, to others, and show that they can make useful contributions uh, in this way. Both groups, we sometimes worry a lot about whether you know people um, feel remorse for what they've done or if they make excuses for, for what they did in the past. We find little difference in regards to those kind of uh, measures when we look at successful desistance versus 
unsuccessful, but those people who are successfully desisting often have a clearer sense of control over their future, forgetting what they did in the past, but but where they're going in the future. They feel uh, more agency and a sense of uh, what we call self-efficacy for, for what they want to do. And, and, and they have these more generative goals. They, they're often focused on uh, others, say their children, or on, on helping their community rather than just necessarily achieving things on their own or, or having a good time. And, and, and those would be some of the key things we, we find differing between the two um, desisting and, and non-desisting or, or offending groups. So it's interesting the role that officials played in James's desistance. When I was going in an older prison then for, for drugs, I started getting chatting to this uh, female prison officer whom I ended up getting on really well with, you know. And she used to say to me, she used to say, James, you're coming in and out of here now a long time, you know, and you come in for a few months and you're out for a few months and in for a few months and, you know, it's obviously not working for you. Like, you shouldn't be here at all, you know. You're not coming in here because you're committing a lot of elaborate crimes and making loads of money. You're not, you're just in, in, a, in the throes of addiction and, you know, the system isn't working for you at all, you know, and you have a head in your shoulders, you know, and you can hold a conversation. You know, these are the things you say to me, like, and um, that was kind of the first time really I started chatting to a prison officer, like kind of human to human, you know, because my relationship with them would have been kind of, and my perception of them would have been very negative too because of my experience going up to visit my father and, you know, a lot of the time when you're going into visit um, in Cork at that time, the person in the reception and in the visiting area was a bit of a, an ignorant pig, you know, and he, you know, very disrespectful to your mother and you just grow up with that resentment, you know, towards the uniform and everything it stood for, you know. But I suppose it takes somebody, maybe a kind officer to kind of help you change your perception, you know, and she definitely helped to change mine. And... Um, I'd want an interaction with a guard there that was kind of similar to that interaction with the female prison officer in that it wasn't the typical interaction in terms of I was after having an overdose in Blarney Street, um, which is not far from here as well, but just between Blarney Street and Sunday as well. And um, somebody was going walking past anyway, they raised the alarm. There was two guardy and two paramedics kind of came to me, I snapped out of it and I got up and walked home. And then the, uh, I was walking through Knocknahini about two days later and the two guards pulled me in. And I was expecting, like, um, stop and search and where you're going, where you're coming from, where were you last night, this type of, the typical, you know, that, that you'd have to get now a thousand times before. But I didn't get that at all. And the guards were like, um, can you remember the other night, James? And he was like, yeah, we had an overdose. I remember the, he says, yeah, I said, look, we know you a long time now. He says, but this is a new law for you, you know. And you're going to be found dead one of the days. You're very lucky somebody spotted you. Um, and you want to look after yourself. Do you know what they just showed me? A bit of concern and a bit of compassion. And um, when somebody doesn't behave like you expect them to behave, you take a much more notice of that. Because if they just gave me the routine stop and search spiel, I was expecting that I'd take no heed of that, I'd have walking away. And there would have been no impact. But because they had a different approach, it really stewed with me, you know, resonated with me and... A couple of days later, I made a phone call to get into treatment, you know, and no treatment happened about six months down the line. But the ball was started rolling with that interaction. So, like, it just got me thinking then, maybe maybe some of the guards were all right, you know, maybe these beliefs I had that guards out and there to be trusted or guards haven't got your best, maybe, maybe some of them were all right, you know, and that was kind of the beginning of a bit of maturity for myself as well. A simple, honest, humane interaction made such a difference. 
Undoubtedly, James probably needed to be in a place where he could take it on board. But at the time that he was ready, Agarda was there saying the important things. And not only is James now in recovery, but he's doing his PhD, he's making the podcast with Timmy, and he's working for Cork's Education and Training Board. One of the more interesting things relevant to this podcast actually was, um, I don't know if you know Chief Superintendent Alan McGovern. Mm, yeah. Yeah, so he was after seeing me on the Tommy Turner show, and uh, I got chatting to him on LinkedIn. And um, he's doing this kind of a human rights module with the, the Garda in the, in the training college, just kind of a collaboration between UL and the Garda and stuff like that. So he asked me what I do a chat with him, that they were going to show the recruits and, and stuff. So I brought him down to my podcast studio here a few months ago and we did a conversation, myself and Alan, and uh, he showed that. Then I suppose that was um, disseminated amongst the Garda and stuff like that. But I got a phone call the other day from a drug squad Garda um, up your way actually Vicky I won't say what town but up, up your way and um, he said he seen that video with me and Alan and then he seen the, the Tommy Turner show and he watches the podcast and he's doing a college course now and uh, he has to come up with something innovative and creative and uh, he's looking at coming up with something in the community to support either people that use drugs or family members that use drugs you know? so he's getting a critical awareness of yeah, the people that I'm arresting, the houses that I'm raiding, yeah, they're involved in crime and stuff like that. But there's other stuff at play here and a lot of the time they're victims themselves and, you know, sending people in and out of prison, this stuff is, has, we have to do more than that, you know. So that was a very, I, I wonder who else watched it, um, watched the Tommy Turner, watched the podcast, watched that thing with Alan and kind of, it's just about raising awareness really, Vicky, you know. I asked if there was something that could have been done earlier and he's really clear on the importance of early intervention. I think when a parent goes to prison, uh, I think there would have been a crucial time for some sort of an intervention if it wasn't from a guard, some social service or courts or probation or somebody like that. Because when, when a parent goes to prison, it's not just them that does the sentence, you know. Like even though maybe the money that we had in the house wasn't from legal means, it was still all we had. And when it was taken from the house, we had nothing, you know. And when you're a child, you don't really understand. And there was no real support put in place, even in school. There was no teacher ever asked, like, James is obviously bright, but there's something going on for him. He can't sit still, he can't behave, in spite of all these negative consequences and bringing down his mother and his nan and suspending him. And all, he's still he's still the same, like, I wonder what's going on. That was never, never asked. There was never any support put in place, you know. There was never any help offered. They, they tried to push shame on my mother because of how I was behaving, but she was doing her best with four kids, you know what I mean? She was on her own. Um, so I, I, that's where the missing when I was on the path for drug use and offending behaviour it didn't no matter what like there was loads of interventions tried with um, youth workers and you know, different key workers and services and stuff like that but when you're on a very destructive path like that to, I just needed to ride it out you know but I think the intervention should have been done when, we, when I was a child really a quick interruption to ask you, if you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and rate us. Head to patreon.com, find Tortoise Shack and support us in bringing all of this content to you. It's a price of a couple of months and you'll get access to versions of the episodes without interruptions like this. And if you're not in a position to support the podcast, we appreciate you sharing the podcast with your friends or following us on Twitter at Police Podcast. A lot of the awareness I have around all this stuff you know, stems from my education and I remember reading an article, it's in there's, um, I don't know, is it the Wiley Handbook of People, Children of Imprisoned Parents, any of it, but there's a big collection of literature on this topic that I was interested in reading. But there was one article and it was like, um, young people 
that have a parent in prison, you know, they, there's loads of data to show that they find it hard to concentrate, that they find it hard to sit still in the class. They might have behavioural issues, not because they're bad children, or you know, there's no such thing as a bad child, but because of maybe the trauma of what was going on in the family home is you not know, acted out in the school. Um, and there's ways and means you can deal with that young person, not label them as stupid or bold or stuff like that. As for changing the guards? Around the drugs, I think, anyway. Like, I think that the guards do have a role to play in the illicit drugs market, you know. Like, there is um, proof that the element of risk keeps drugs prices relatively high and availability relatively scarce. When I say scarce and high, I'm talking about, like, in relation to if it was legalised. I wouldn't be a fan of or a proponent of legalisation of um, certainly hair drugs. Um, Do you know, I think it's... um, Jonathan Calkins and Peter Wright or they're like economist criminologists but they have this risk and price model and the higher the risk um, the higher the price of the drug so um, I think that's where the guards resources could be focused in maybe the trafficking of the drugs and maybe the high level criminals and stuff like that but a lot of the time the resources are put in the, the drug user and the, the petty stuff on the street you know um, and I just see it myself working in homeless services and addiction services here in Cork you know the amount of resources that goes into this. And there was actually something went viral the other day. There was somebody in Cork, up in court, for four euros worth of cannabis. He was in recovery from a heroin addiction. And he'd um, he'd health issues that he used. And they raided his house and brought him to court for the grinder. And f- what, like, what are you... Like, any time you get caught with drugs, it's always nearly quadrupled or at least tripled in value. Do you know? So four euro worth of cannabis is really one euro. What is one euro worth of cannabis really like? Do you know what I mean? It's ridiculous. And the amount of, the amount of money it costs to bring him to court. And then the, the language that was used in the court around he wasn't getting a suspended sentence or community. The judge wouldn't give him community service until he could prove he was clean. Like, and then they posted his name and his date of birth and his address on the paper. This is a man in his 50s with children. The humiliation of it and the waste, it's just... There, there's the crux of the problem, you know, that's what I see it, you know, and if the resources could be put into the community, people at all, if Gardy could be trained in around the stuff we're talking about, around having a critical eye around the trauma, training and being able to identify maybe when, as I'd gabber Matt on the podcast the day and he says, like, it's not why the addiction, why the pain, and if you had a guard coming in saying, he's using drugs here all the time, we have to arrest him a lot of times, prison, and he still uses, maybe maybe we need a different approach, or maybe, you know, this isn't working, you know. Things like the caution scheme can be used by the guards, and there's a specific drug court now, but James explains why these are of limited use. One of my colleagues here is involved with um, the court district court in terms of that diversion scheme, you know, for drug offenders for the first and second offence, which is great for those maybe students that get caught with a bit of weed on rag week or as I was saying earlier on, the student gets caught with an ecstasy tablet on freshers week and they can avoid the conviction. But for somebody in chronic addiction or somebody that uses drugs um, to you know, soothe their traumas as a self-medication, the absurdity of it. Um, if you have somebody in homelessness here, right, and homelessness is a very dangerous, precarious living situation, you know, there's nothing more dangerous than to be living in the streets of any city. 
And if they didn't have drugs, they 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 end up in the river, you know. And so the drugs actually helps them to survive that environment. And there's drugs that helps children and young people cope with the abuses and neglect in the home and the traumas they've experienced. This is a reality that most of us don't want to face. That these kids who've experienced ACEs need something because of the pain and trauma. And they aren't getting what they need elsewhere. Drugs can be a sticking plaster on that wound until they become the wound themselves. If a guard arrests me, let's say if I'm in, I use myself for an example, I'm a very troubled teen um, using drugs and addiction. If I get caught with drugs, if, I, if I'm if i using heroin, which I was, and I get caught with heroin in the morning, all right, and I get a charge for that, I'm, I'm going to go and look for that heroin again in the evening. There's no two ways about it. If I get caught with that again in the evening, I'm not going to turn around and then say, Right, I'm after using up my two strikes now. It's better. I'll never again use drugs now and go straight because I'm afraid I go to court. That never comes into your... That never comes into play, it doesn't. Shad reflects on the importance of combining work on trauma and ACEs with desistance in terms of criminal justice responses. In some ways, the thing lacking in the, the ACEs trauma literature uh, is is precisely... Uh, desistance. You know, what about hope? Uh, it, it says, yes, the people who have multiple uh, traumas in, in their life are much more likely to get, get involved in, in addiction or, or criminal behavior and, and the like. But does this mean that they are, are uh, doomed to a life on the margins of society? We, we know from the desistance literature that oftentimes people will overcome the, the, these many disadvantages in their life and, and that desistance is kind of ubiquitous and normative process in the lives of, of those on the margin. So, um, the, you know, mapping the two together uh, is really important. From, from the desistance point of view, you know, the risk of that literature and the way it's interpreted is, is often at its most um, caricature level is a kind of neoliberal, oh, any, you can do whatever you want as long as you have hope. Uh, all you need is a little self-confidence and you too can overcome your, your past. And that's a terrible uh, bastardization of, of what the desistance literature is about. Uh, but And there, you know, ha- having that actually know of folks who, who are in the situation of, of the, the habitual offending population are people who have been saddled with, you know, countless um, um, disadvantages and personal traumas in their lives. And it's not just a matter of wanting to change or choosing to change, making that choice to change. Um, Desistance is is a lot more complicated than that. So um, the trauma literature is is useful, uh, um, infinitely useful in this new dialogue. We know the traditional approach doesn't work. We are sending people to prison, but the numbers involved in drugs are only growing. Desistance theory offers a different way of approaching this. I think and that's one of the most disheartening things, and you might find this too, Vicky, as a researcher yourself. You could come up with the best research, you know, rigorous scientific methods, um, and it can be just ignored for an ideology. Unnecessarily, like, and you've people dying, and you've the amount of money. Um, we spoke with Philly McMahon, he was telling us that... Um, a quarter of a million to send a young person to Oberstown for 12 months and about 340,000 for a, to send a, a young girl. Like the, the money that's been wasted because of an ideology is frightening, you know? James has a nuanced view of police. They may have over-policed him at times, but equally the words of a Garda were a huge factor in him going into treatment. I suppose the one thing I would say about the guards is the guards have a tough job and they do get a lot of stick and there's a significant amount of guards... Um, 
that are good men and that are there to help, but there's a significant amount that are probably shouldn't be in the job and they bring a lot of flack to the organisation um, and to the genuine guards. And for those guards, I feel sorry for them and I wish them the best. I know there's the guard, there's a very high rate of suicide and mental health issues in the guards. Um, it's a tough job. It's an often a thankless job. The bottom line of desistance and, you know, the kind of the uh, if we only have one contribution to the world from desistance research uh, after 30 years of, of doing this work, that would be that people can and do change. And that's um, a very important message for, for all of us. But it's certainly important for, for police. You know, the, the policing is, is based very much on a risk model. And, and the idea of, of the usual suspects is so common as to be cliche in, in the policing world. How, how do you uh, gauge who, who a risky character is? Well, well, the best predictor of, of future behavior is past behavior. Yeah, and, and, and so we uh, target those individuals who uh, have shady pasts. Uh, we, we look for people who have done criminal behavior in, in the past, and we say these are the ones who are most likely to do it in, in the future. And um, although there's there's a logic to that, and it's, it, it's totally understandable, it's also um, hugely problematic because of what we know about criminology. One, uh, that the desistance evidence is that most people who we label as offenders, who, who we think of as, as habitual in criminal activity, will desist from crime and move on to, to many years, decades of crime-free behavior. So, so we're, we're falsely labeling and, and, and we hit far too many false positives. But, but also what we started off talking about, um, that, that, that targeting itself can actually be criminogenic in nature. And, and, and by even just uh, um, harassing over and over again the usual suspects, uh, the police can break down one's uh, willpower and you often hear from those desisting that, look, I had been trying, I've been months clean, and then they continue to harass me. And eventually I decided, look, if I'm going to be harassed, I might as well do the crime uh, anyway. And, and, and that kind of self-fulfilling prophecy is uh, exactly the kind of own goal that, that we don't want uh, with police. This chimes with James's view on how these seemingly small interactions, individually and collectively, are so important. And I always say, I know I'm involved in training, recruit prison officers, and I always say, like, your words can have a big impact, but you might never see the fruits of it, you know, but you can plant the seed. You have to make every contact count, you know, and those guards did at that time, that female prison officer did at that time. And since then, I went on to do, you know, good things in my life and get into recovery. One of the things I really liked about talking to James and Shad about this is that idea of hope. That rather than heavy criminalising responses from the state, we could combine a recognition of their trauma and pain through ACEs and present them with hope and pathways to lives that may be healthy, fulfilling, maybe even happy, through desistance. We know there are those in the Gardaí who agree with this. They help James and no doubt many others. But at best, it's inconsistent. And if we consider it in terms of labelling, the traditional police response is making things worse rather than better. And it doesn't need to be like that. I was delighted to have James speak to me and give an insight into a side of policing we don't hear about that often. And if you aren't listening to the Two Naris podcast, check it out. A huge thanks to Shabaruna for taking the time to tell us about desistance. This episode was produced by Tony Groves and Brian Eckers ahead. 
We'll be back next week talking about the policing of road safety from a cyclist perspective. 